Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Richard Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Samer Malik. Samer is the Executive Vice President and General Manager of Genoa Telepsychiatry, one of the largest outpatient telepsychiatry providers in the country, which has a special focus on expanding access to mental health care in rural America. He came into this role through the acquisition of his company, One Dockway, a New York City-based telepsychiatry company, which he co-founded and where he served as a CEO. Thank you so much for being with us today, Samer. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to just kind of dive right in, maybe just with your background, what led you to co-found One Doc Way and how you eventually got acquired by Genoa to become Genoa Telepsychiatry. Sure. The story starts back in 2011. I was working in a psychiatric hospital doing business development and strategy for them. And one thing we saw uh, pretty frequently was that we do hard work helping patients get better. We discharge them back into their communities. And when they didn't have access to good follow-on care, they'd get sick again or they'd decompensate. And within some period of time, we'd find them back at the hospital. And that was really unfortunate because you could see all the good work that was done by the case managers and the social workers and the nurses and the physicians be undone because there was lack of good follow-on care in the communities these patients were going home to. And so the thinking was, well, we've got all these psychiatrists here at the hospital. Can we maybe use telemedicine to extend care and create follow-on programs for these patients in the communities that they were going home to. This pretty quickly turned from an initiative at the hospital into an opportunity to build a standalone business. Uh, started working on it with a couple friends of mine from college. And you know the journey from there was much like any startup, a little bit of discovery, a lot of listening to our customers, a lot of recognizing that our customers needed expertise in thinking through telemedicine back in 2011. They didn't know what telemedicine was, how the rules worked, how the programs needed to be managed. So we ended up taking on a lot of that work to really serve these customers who were clinics and hospitals. Uh, Over time, uh, you know, we had raised some venture money, then eventually some private equity money. We were acquired by Genoa in 2016. Genoa at that time was running a business building pharmacies and community mental health centers. What we found in the years leading up to the acquisition was that community mental health centers were one of the organization types most in need of increased access to psychiatric care. And so as we were partnering with community mental health centers, we saw these Genoa pharmacies time and time again. We explored a partnership with Genoa that turned into an acquisition. We continued building the business from 2016 to 2018, at which point uh, we were the largest provider of telepsychiatry services in the country. And that's when Optum acquired the business in uh, October of 2018. And we've been building the business inside of Optum ever since. Today, we are serving about a quarter million patients a year across all 50 states from a team of about 500 psychiatrists and nurse practitioners. So you spoke to kind of what got you started by observing what was happening with people bouncing back and seeing the excess capacity. I'm curious, what observations have you made similarly in the era of COVID-19 and How has that maybe changed your thinking? One of the most dramatic changes to the field of telemedicine since COVID began is the shift of telemedicine from being a facility-centric application, meaning providing care to patients in emergency rooms or ICU units or outpatient clinics for specialty care. That's where we were prior to March. 
Now telemedicine is a home-based service modality primarily. And what that's meant is we're able to actually make care more convenient and more straightforward for patients to access. We have seen no-show rates fall because patients can just go to their living room or bedroom and do an appointment from there rather than catching a bus or getting in a car and going to an appointment. Lower no-show rates means fundamentally that patients do want to stay engaged in their care. Maybe they don't often get the credit for that because missing appointments can be so damaging to their long-term outcomes, but it's not that they're unengaged with their care. And I think that's been an eye-opener for lots of us in the space. The hope is that the regulatory landscape remains such that we can continue serving patients in their homes. And I'm speaking for all telemedicine providers today. The challenge is there's no guarantee that commercial payers, Medicaid, or CMS will continue to reimburse in the home once COVID is through. We're advocating for it, many folks are, but you know, time will tell whether or not that ends up being a permanent part of the future of US healthcare delivery. And specifically with both what you said initially with what you were observing with emergency room settings, people going and getting discharged and with COVID as well, can you talk a little bit about the disproportionate impact mental health is having across populations? I'd say there are a few different manifestations of the mental health problems since COVID onset. The first that we're probably all more familiar with that you've seen studies on and data on is that the incidence of behavioral health challenges, the increase of anxiety and depression, increases in loneliness are spiking or have spiked, I should say, with the lockdown and with social distancing and with increased isolation. So that's created a bit of a challenge at a social level that folks are now running at a higher anxiety level on average, that you're seeing more medications dispensed to manage anxiety and depression than ever before. So we've got a public health crisis emerging there. At the same time, one thing that we're seeing in addition to a growth in the needs for the milder acuity population, we're also seeing challenges reaching the most complex. I talked about the ability to deliver services into the patient's home with COVID, and that's been good for a wide range of folks, but not everyone has either the wherewithal, the resources, or the technology to consume telemedicine services in their home. And that's really put some patients on the far corners of being hard to reach. And because they're hard to reach and because we're adhering to social distancing requirements, you're finding that maybe patients are decompensating without having any help. And we're going to see what comes out of the other side of this, but that's a dangerous undercurrent that's emerging that nobody's really wrapped their arms around all that well, except for you know the few case managers and social workers out there who have done the hard work of going out to the communities and finding these patients wherever they may be. Have you seen any interesting solutions, and maybe even in the U.S., but also I'm thinking internationally in places like India that's been hard hit by COVID, obviously has a very poor population, Brazil, other places where they're dealing with this maybe with a different model? One of the things that we've seen internationally is a broader public health awareness around the importance of investing in mental health. And at the very least, we can say that's going to be good and persistent, that public health organizations, government ministries, et cetera, especially in developing countries, are more aware of mental health than ever before. If we were having this interview back in February, the answer would have been the Western countries, you know, Western Europe, 
North American countries have destigmatized mental health more than perhaps countries that are in certain growth stages. That is changing now. You're seeing a destigmatization of mental health across India, Brazil, even China. We're hearing now of the importance of investing in mental health. So while you can't necessarily point to more effective telemedicine strategies in those markets just yet, you can point to a destigmatization, which I think builds the foundation for more growth and innovation in these ways. What do you think is causing that destigmatization? I'm familiar with this. One of my cousins is a social worker in India and deals with mental health issues day in, day out. And I talked to her about this. And she was saying kind of the same thing, but but I've never really gotten a clear answer on why that's changing or why it's changing so fast. It's a very good question. I don't know if I have all the answers there, Rishi, to be perfectly honest. I would suspect it's an intersection of a few things. One is we are a more connected globe than ever before. And so as these matters you know, make their way through the media in Western markets, that same content is now getting consumed in India. So as you start to see movies that discuss mental illness, that, that starts to pervade society globally. You combine that with a recognition that the lockdown has been very taxing and you start to hear about increases in suicide rates in a place like India, where there have been global headlines around increases in suicides. I think it's a call to action for policymakers and other influential people in these countries to recognize that mental health is real. There, of course, can be cultural baggage that can make that a challenge in any country, not to pick on any one region whatsoever. But generally speaking, if you look at the data, what you see are the prevalence of of social workers and mental health professionals in certain countries is low, and that's a reflection of the acceptance of mental health as a treatable condition in many places today. So you you brought up an interesting thing that I often think about, which is like how mental health is discussed in the media and how public perceptions of mental health are shaped by the media. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on how that's happened through COVID and specifically if you see any myths or any things that are kind of talked about in a way that's not accurate or or not really realistic. I really like this question. I think my general observations would be modern media is really good at recognizing mental health as one, a reality, two, a condition that needs support, and three, offering support to those who could benefit from having support around mental health treatment. You see the role of therapists active in media. You see counselors come on the news to talk about the impacts. You see governments start to put their leaders in charge of mental health in front of the media as well. So I think that the trends are mostly positive. Where where I suspect there may be challenges are around the narrative that has been emerging around whether therapy or medication tends to be the right answer. And I would suggest that this isn't an or question. This can sometimes be an and question. For some people, depending on where they are in their journey, they may need both therapy and medication management to find the other side. And seeing that problem with a bit more nuance, I think would help. Of course, nuance is very hard in today's media environment. You can't expect or ask for nuance. I think it's 
podcasts like this. It's long form content that can help folks understand the nuance in, you know, not looking at mental health in a binary treatment modality. I think increasingly, there also seems to be more and more talk or discussion around other things that can affect mental health. So specifically exercise or meditation, which maybe you would think of that as being under the umbrella or superset of therapy, but even things like diet, you know, these things having a direct effect on mental health and, and seeing if the data comes out about it. I think one of the things that I've always found a challenge is that it feels like there's two spheres of influence one where clinicians learn about this stuff and one where patients learn about this stuff. And sometimes the two never meet. And so I'm curious, like what, what are some sources that you think are, are good sources for information on psychiatry or mental health from a wellness perspective? If someone is out there thinking, I just want to enhance my wellness. What are some sources that you think are good sources for that? The government has done a decent amount in terms of creating good visibility and awareness around mental health. So there is an administration within the federal government called SAMHSA, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, S-A-M-H-S-A. And if you check out their website, they have a lot of great content around just understanding mental health, getting up to speed on if you have or are feeling a certain way, how to perhaps start down a path of understanding what that is and moving to a place where maybe you do need to take an assessment or a screen and start down a path towards a diagnosis. So SAMHSA is one great resource. There are a few organizations out there that represent and advocate for mental wellness. NAMI, N-A-M-I, the National Alliance on Mental Illness is one of them. Their website is also worth checking out. They've got lots of content lots of research that they either sponsor or publish where you can start to learn. So I guess with that as a segue, then I'd like to ask you to identify something that you think a lot of people don't know, something very specific or a common myth or a common misunderstanding around what it is that you do every day, or it could be in the domain of mental health and wellness as we've been talking about and teach us something. So something that you think could be enlightening to our audience in the spirit of what we do as a teaching education company. I love this question. You know, teaching is so important to our organization. We actually have part of our interview process dedicated towards having candidates teach the interviewer something in order to understand, you know, could this person fit our teaching approach? There are so many things that we've learned over the years that we've been doing this. But I suppose one of the ones that for me is the most salient is how passionate people in mental health are about doing the right thing. We work with psychiatrists, we work with community clinics, we work with social workers, we work with CEOs. And I've been in business for a while. The leaders and the practitioners I speak to in this space have so much conviction around trying to do the right thing that your jaw kind of drops at the lengths to which people go to try to do the right thing. So I'll give you a really great example. We have a partner, a social service agency in Long Island, and uh, we were visiting them recently. And we were talking about what services are working best to support their community. We start talking about the common things, you know, group programming, peer programming, and we start talking about crisis because crisis can be a really dangerous space for folks suffering mental illness when everything just seems to be building on itself and creating an acceleration in stress, anxiety, destabilization, et cetera. Crisis generally in this country isn't considered a reimbursed service. If you're suffering a mental illness, 
you go to an emergency room because that's the only place that will happily take you because they're going to get paid for that work. This agency in Long Island, they went about opening a crisis unit, just a standalone building dedicated exclusively to mental health crises. They decided they would fund it entirely out of their own grant-making budget to the tune of $4 million a year just to make sure the community had these resources. Keep in mind, you know, this isn't Google who has $4 million to spend on a Tuesday if they want. This is a community agency that's funded primarily by government programs where people are being paid less than market wages just to do work that feels aligned with their passion. And yet the organization feels enough conviction that spending $4 million in this way is the right thing to do for their community. So that's just an example of many, many instances over the last decade where we've seen people in this field really go beyond the call of duty in order to do the right thing for patients. That's a great example. I appreciate you sharing that. Do you mind sharing advice now? The way I like to close interviews is to have people give advice to people that are rising up and starting their clinical journeys, whatever the journey that might be, you know, maybe they're starting out as nursing assistants or physicians, whatever it may be. Any thoughts as they start going down this road of seeing patients? It may seem obvious to some people in their training, but not so obvious to others. Never lose sight of the patient. We're all here in service of the patient. And it's easy to get abstracted away from that and get tied up in how does reimbursement work or what is a payer going to pay or what are the requirements to document or code something or, you know, is there a market for developing this new treatment? Those are all important questions to ask. I'm not saying dismiss those questions. But as you address those questions in your clinical pursuits, Frame them in the lens of how will this impact the patient and for the positive or not. If you can keep your eyes on what you're doing and how it impacts the patient, you will always be effective and successful in your clinical journey. And keep in mind, I'm not a clinician, but we work with hundreds of them. And I think what distinguishes our organization and the folks who work with us is a patient-centeredness. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. And I think that you're right, that it's, it may feel obvious, but it's the most important thing. So maybe on that note, I'll, I'll say thank you, Samer, for joining us and sharing what you're doing. And it's obviously a very inspiring story. It's very cool how you got things started and, and where you've landed today. So I appreciate you uh, being with us. I really do appreciate you inviting us to share our story here, but more importantly, thank you for the work you're doing to create this content, to put good information out there for folks interested in learning and growing. We're lucky to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, I'm Rishi Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.